0: Heavenly Father, this is not the first time that you have given us a vision of that last day in the book of Revelation. We are hearing it again anew, this time from the perspective of the harvester. And as we hear it, Father, we recognize that there are actually two harvests, one of wheat to eternal life and another of grapes to eternal death. I pray, Father, that You would be gracious with us this morning and that You would, by Your Spirit, make these truths real to us today and every day until You call us home or come again in glory. I ask that You would cause us to see the end clearly. Give us crystal clarity, Father, on this great harvest to come so that we might know which harvest we belong to. Give us clarity, Father, in Christ, that we might know this first harvest that is His is a gathering of His people throughout the centuries into your eternal kingdom. Cause us to rejoice over that. Give us clarity as well to this second harvest of grapes that will be trampled in your wine press of fury. Show us that, Father, clearly, that you might keep our feet on the narrow path of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that you might rightly break our hearts. That we might see all those in our mission field. All those whom we love. Who do not know Christ. Being subject to this second harvest. And the fury of your wrath. In light of that truth Father I pray that you would make us today. Faithful witnesses to the gospel of Christ. Open our mouths Lord that we might testify. Give us a desire to make disciples here and of all nations. We ask for clarity on a difficult passage, Father. Do not cause us, do not allow us to shy away from it, but enable us to hear it in the full magnitude and even the graphic nature in which it was recorded for us so that we might live now and every day for your glory. I ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm very thankful you're here. Um, when we get to the end of 14, we are, we are looking at that harvest, that final harvest at the end of the age, and it is difficult. It's difficult to hear, and for those of you who have active imaginations, um, the graphic detail is intentional. God has that in his word to magnify the importance of that last day, and therefore how we are, how we are to live in light of that truth. Um, when, I w- when I was a child, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, i probably embarrassed to actually say this, it was one of my favorite movies. Um, not only because I love chocolate, and I, mean, I really, really love chocolate, probably to a sinful degree, um, but I loved how that story ended. I wasn't raised in a Christian home and there was something about this, the ending of this story that was very precious to me. For those of you who do not know the, the movie, Willy Wonka was the owner of a, a relatively eccentric chocolate factory and he had taken five golden tickets, and he hid them in his Wonka chocolate bars, and he sent them throughout the world. And whoever found the ticket was going to be flown to the factory. They were going to get a, a private tour of the factory, and then they were going to get a lifetime supply of Wonka chocolate. Yeah, I fantasized about that a lot. <laughs> Four of the tickets go to these, these ill-behaved, um, privileged children Um, that behave accordingly inside the factory. But one ticket, in fact the final fifth ticket, goes to a young man by the name of Charlie Bucket. And if you know the story, he was a poor paper boy in a poor town who used to drive by these candy stores and he would look inside at the candy that he could not afford to have. He longed for it. Well, during the tour, as the movie progresses, each child experiences some moral failure, some temptation that causes them to actually be ousted from the tour itself. And only Charlie makes it to the end, but he doesn't make it without guilt on his hands as well. He and his Grandpa Joe, they had sampled beverages from the fizzy lifting drinking room, if you remember, and they elevated themselves, specifically against Willy Wonka's orders at the beginning of the tour. So at the end of the tour, when they asked about their promised lifelong supply of chocolate, Wonka told them that they had violated their contract, They stole drinks from the fizzy lifting drink room and they had forfeited their reward. Ashamed of his actions, Charlie Bucket gives, he had an everlasting gobstopper. He gives it back to Wonka, acknowledging his guilt and his unworthiness. Well, Wonka is so moved with compassion that he announces suddenly that Charlie actually was the winner and Charlie having no idea what he was talking about. Willy Wonka created the entire contest to find someone who was worthy to inherit his factory, his Willy Wonka chocolate kingdom. And Charlie's humility and his recognition of his guilt captured Wonka's heart and Charlie went from being a poor paper boy, unable to buy treats, to the future heir of Willy Wonka's entire empire. It ends in a most glorious way. My beloved, this morning as we contemplate the two harvests to come at the end of the age and how the story ends, listen, for all mankind, all mankind will be harvested. I want us to consider how we are living right now in light of these truths and that ending and what our relationship is with the harvester. Charlie and Grandpa Joe were absolutely shocked that the real prize was not a lifetime of chocolate. It was inheriting Willy Wonka's entire kingdom. And I dare say those other four children, had they known that was the prize, they may have behaved very, very differently as they went through the tour. From our passage today, um, I pray that we will come to terms with what our future holds for the saved and for the unsaved, and as a result, live our lives accordingly, wisely. This morning, John he receives one more vision. This is his last vision before we get to chapter 15 and the, the teachings on the seven bowls, And that will begin the end of the consummation of the story as we move to the climax in chapters 20, 21, and 22. And the vision today, it's a, it's a harvest vision. It's the harvest at the very end of time when God will reap the harvest of man. He will reap it some to eternal life in Christ and others to eternal damnation in hell. And like the other visions, it's not in chronological order. So we keep moving around and here we get to the very end, we get to the last day, we get to the last, this final harvest and it's a retelling so that we can hear it again because we always forget, don't we? day in, day out. Mondays come and Fridays come and we forget the importance of this end time. It's a retelling of the end from the vantage point of the harvester. And the harvest you experience in the end, my beloved, will determine your relation, Will be determined by your relationship with the one who does the harvest. I have two points from the sermon today that I pray you're able to receive with great encouragement. Number one, the harvest of eternal life. And number two, the harvest of eternal death. The harvest of eternal life and the harvest of eternal death. The theme of the sermon is this. Your relationship with the harvester determines your harvest. Your relationship with the one who exercises the harvest determines your harvest in the end. Will it be the first one to eternal life or will it be the second one to eternal death? Point number one, the harvest of eternal life. So in this last vision before the cycle of the bulls, John sees a white cloud and it's singular in the Greek. He sees a white cloud and one like a son of man seated on it. Look at verse 14. John writes, Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now there is, there is great debate as to who this individual on this cloud is. Some argue that it is another angel of the Lord. Um, I believe in the context it's probably better to understand it as Christ himself seated upon that cloud. Um, he could have, John could have easily used another term for angel uh, to um, identify the person that he sees, but he doesn't. He actually goes and he draws from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and so we get a clue here that he's talking about the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. In in Daniel chapter 7, the Messiah is seen as, as going to the Father, of the Ancient of Days, and receiving the kingdom of God. This is what Daniel writes centuries earlier. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there come one like a Son of Man, speaking, of course, of Christ. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, the same title, One Like a Son of Man, if you remember was given by John to Christ back in Revelation chapter 1 just a few weeks ago or maybe more than a few weeks ago when we were there. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus himself in describing this exact time period when the end will come, he uses the term son of man to describe himself. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said this, when when the son of man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one from one to another, and these, the goats then, he's speaking in that, in that uh, analogy, the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. So I believe that we can read this with good confidence as Jesus on that white cloud, and that cloud represents his rule and reign as king. The gold crown obviously represents his authority, but the type of authority he will exercise, which is purity, a pure reign, And what's odd here, though, that this king has a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, that's not something that was ordinarily attached to a king, but it is this king because he's going to reap the harvest of men. This picture that John has is Jesus gathering all those in the first harvest who he personally redeemed by his own blood. Look at verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud. So an angel comes from the temple. When we think temple, we think presence of God. We think throne room of God. This angel comes out and he has a message from the father and the father is saying to the son what? It is time. It's time to put in the sickle. It's time to harvest the crop and to bring all those who have been saved, all those redeemed into the kingdom of God once and for all. Look at the latter part of verse 15. Put in your sickle, the angel says, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now, many of you, hopefully most of you probably know what a sickle is, even if you've never held one in your hand. A harvesting sickle was a relatively short farming tool that had a handle, and it had a a semicircular blade, a crescent grave that was very sharp on one side that was used to cut down lots of different things, but specifically to harvest wheat and to harvest grain. And so the angel says, put in your sickle. To put in one sickle was to go and actually start striking it down. Take down the grain, gather it together, and then bring it into the barn because it is fully ripe. It's certainly reminiscent of Jesus' parable, the weeds, In Matthew 13, where the weeds, as we know, that represent the unsaved, they're gathered and they're what? They're burned. But the master says this to his servants, Matthew 13, verse 30, gather the wheat, those who are saved, into my barn, into the eternal kingdom. So here Jesus is instructed to put his sickle in because the hour to reap had come, and it had come because now the harvest was fully ripe. In other words, it was time for God's people to go home. The sojourning on earth had ended. It was fully ripe, it was fully mature. Now, I wasn't raised on a farm, so I had to do a little bit of research on this, but a mature wheat, when wheat becomes mature, that means it's no longer green. Um, In fact, a farmer will go out and he'll take the head and he, he does what's called rubbing it out and he'll rub it in his hands and he'll get some of the seed of it and then he'll put it into his teeth and if he can bite into it, then it's not ripe yet. If he bites into it and it's hard, then it is ripe and ready to harvest. So metaphorically here, this means that the final harvest of God, listen, this is good news for you, will not take place until every single person ordained to be saved before the foundations of the world is saved. Until it is fully ripe, the full harvest of God's people for all time. Every last soul ordained to be saved, marked with the name of Jesus and the Father, not marked with the number of the beast or the beast's name to be brought in. Paul made this very clear in Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will as a plan for the fullness of time. When the time comes, Every single person ordained to be saved will be saved. What great news that is for us, my beloved. So John's harvest vision is of that final hour when God says it's time to reap Jesus. It's time for you to reap what you have sown with your own blood. Look at verse 16. So he, this is Christ now, he who sat on the cloud, he swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. So our Lord's sickle, it spans space and time. All those redeemed from every age, every person from every kingdom that came to a saving grace in Christ throughout all of human history, every soul who refused to bow down to the dragon, who refused to take the number of the beast, every soul who said, I will worship God and God alone will be gathered into this great first harvest. It is a promise that God will complete what He started in your life, my beloved. The Apostle Paul reassured us of that and the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So if you know Christ now, he is going to guarantee that you make it in because he's going to make sure that happens. He will not lose one of the Father, that all the Father give to him. Now, this hope of eternal salvation, of that hour coming and Christ harvesting his people to himself. We hear it, I think in this moment, if you know Jesus, it produces some excitement. You think, yes, you say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come now. Um, But it's hard, is it not, to keep this teaching before us day in and day out. You hit Monday, you hit Tuesday, the work week's been long, and someone says, oh, what about that harvest? You go, oh, that's right. What about that harvest? We have a tendency to forget and to allow the day-to-day get caught up in our minds rather than... This future harvest. So John reminds us repeatedly throughout Revelation and here that the grain when it is fully ripe will be brought in on that hour and therefore what? Therefore we must be ready. We must be ready for the day of harvest. That day of harvest for you, it may be when you leave this place, when you take your last breath and you come into the presence of God, that harvest then is set for all eternity. It will be a harvest of life or a harvest of death. Or that harvest will come when Jesus actually comes again in glory. But either way, your harvest will be determined based upon your relationship to this king. So we must be ready. And we must be ready now. In fact, Jesus made this clear. He taught the disciples this probably multiple times. But in 1 Thessalonians, we know that Paul says that Jesus is going to come like what? Like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. So how do we make ourselves ready? And, And what part? Do you play in that? Are you just you know thirty minutes in the mi- thirty seconds in the microwave and boom you 're ready, or is there a process of sanctification? The Bible says there's a process the, third, the church in thessalonica they if you remember in, in paul 's letter, the first letter they wrote, they were really concerned that they had missed the harvest that 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 those who had died were going to miss the first harvest to eternal life so Paul not only brings clarity that, he says, no, settle down. He goes, when Christ comes again in glory, you will be raised, and that harvest will be yours. But then he also gave counsel on how we should be ready now, what we're to do now in preparation for the harvest to come. This is what he writes, and Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, sudden destruction will come upon them, those who are not saved, and they will not escape. They will not escape the second harvest. But then Paul says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You shouldn't be surprised, he's saying, for you are all children of light, children of the day. So then, Paul says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul says, in light of this great harvest to come, Paul encourages Christians to be awake and sober, spiritually awake and spiritually sober. You say, of what? Well, certainly of all the dangers we looked at over the past several weeks of the dragon and the first beast and the second beast and the world system trying to to entice us and to bring us in and cause us to not worship God, we certainly must be aware of that. But it, it also means being sober and awake to your position, your relational position in Jesus. Today, where do you stand in your walk with the Lord? Paul actually addresses three things. He talks about faith and hope and love And he says, you want to monitor your faith. How is your faith today, my my beloved? Is it growing in Christ? Is it grounded in Christ? Or do you feel it wavering? Has it been a, a difficult week or month or year and you see your faith diminishing, not growing? Be awake and sober to that. Be awake and just sober to the love in your heart. Is it being cultivated? Are you growing in your love for God? Yes or No. Are you growing in your love for one another, yes or no? Are you growing in your love for the lost? These are questions that we want to ask ourselves. Are we sober and awake in our love? My beloved, I was confessing to uh, some brothers and sisters last week that I have felt my heart cold lately. You know what that's like, right? I mean, you're, you're moving through your life in Christ and you haven't forsaken the cross. You haven't left your Lord. But for some reason, I just wasn't as tender and compassionate. I said, Lord, forgive me. I don't That love is not there that's supposed to be there. Are you aware of that? Are you sober to that? Are you, are you awake and sober to the hope that you have of this future resurrection? I love how the scriptures say to what? Fix your hope completely on the revelation to be brought to you at the coming of Christ. Is your hope there, or have you turned it to something else, something temporal, something fleeting that will not last? So we are to remain awake and sober by intentionally what? Cultivating our faith, growing in our love, fixing our hope on Christ at his second coming. We're to do all these things. There's an active part of you being ripened. It's not just sit back and relax and have the Spirit do whatever the Spirit's gonna do. It's certainly not that horrible adage we had several years ago, a let go and let God. That's not biblical. It's grab onto God with all your might and run the race. That's scripture. But then Paul, he ends his exhortation to Thessalonians of, of being awake and sober and growing in faith and hope and love. He ends it with this imperative that, that I want to talk about briefly before we get to our second point because as Westerners, we don't get the imperative. The imperative. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. In light of this great harvest to come, in light of you staying awake and sober, he said, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So the church in Thessalonica, they were doing a good job. They were properly loving and growing and encouraging one another. But what Paul is saying here is this battle to stay sober and awake, this battle to grow in faith, hope, and love, it's to be fought Shocking now, ready, in the context of the church. That battle is in the context of the community of believers. Now most of you have probably seen a field of wheat and if you haven't, hopefully you've seen a picture of a field of wheat. You don't see one strand of wheat blowing in the wind out there all by itself. What do you see? You see hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of wheat growing together and it's being ripened together And one of the primary means that God uses to keep you, listen, on that narrow path of the gospel, to keep you sober and awake and paying attention to the harvest to come are other brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the primary ways that God ripens us and sanctifies us and keeps us all the way into heaven is other Christians. You, helping one another make it all the way into the Father's barn. You encouraging and being encouraged. You building up and being built up by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, listen, in the, in the first century Mediterranean culture, this was an easy thing for them to understand. They were a communal people inside and outside the church. They understood. They were interdependent. They were uh, required to live in community. Not so in the Western world and not so grievously in the Western church, autonomy, not community, is both encouraged and applauded. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self self above all else, it continues to be, I believe, one of the most powerful and popular lies by uh, by, uh, the dragon and the first and second beast. Into the church, this lie that we can Grow in holiness and stay sober and stay awake all alone. It's one of the most powerful lies of Satan and it has grabbed hold of our church in the West to the degree that we don't even notice it anymore. We don't even think that it's an issue. We're told that we can stay the course of faith alone without intimacy, without brotherly love, without sisterly edification, without mutual accountability. This shift from biblical community to keep us on the narrow path to unbiblical isolation. It is not only grievous, but it is contrary to the entire New Testament. In the New Testament, there are 59 one-another statements. 59. And they're imperatives. You are to one another, you are to love one another and encourage one another and build one another. 59 of these statements, biblical commands, listen, given by God to his people on how we are to love and encourage and rebuke and live to make it to the end. The question I want to ask you before moving to the harvest of judgment is how communal is your faith? Ask yourself that right now. How communal, truly communal, is your faith? If the totality of your communal faith is an hour and a half on Sunday morning, I would say you're in danger. The Bible would say you're in danger. This question is not, do you practice, do you participate in the Sunday worship or community groups or discipleship groups? Those are our funny little Western things we do to try to make community. In the New Testament church, Sunday gatherings, community groups, discipleship groups, those would have been bare bones for minimum for community. Absolute bare bones for real community. The better question you want to ask is this, are you engaged in the life of the church in the regular gatherings, and here's where it gets hard. Are you accountable? Are you accountable? Do you have two or three or four brothers or sisters in your life, members of the body of Christ, that know you? I mean, really know you. Not what you display on Sunday, not what you show up with in a community group, but really know you through and through. They not only know you, but they love you in Christ and and they will speak the truth to you in love, and you've given them permission to do so. You've said to them, listen, I'm open to you. Anything you want to say at any time, you tell me. I know you love me, and I know you want what's best for me in Jesus. Do you have two or three or four people like that in your life? Is there intimacy, real Christian intimacy in your relationships with members here? Real intimacy. Intimacy. Family intimacy, brother and sister intimacy. And, and does the church here, if you're a member here, does it feel like family? Because it is family. Do you experience it as such? My beloved, are there brothers and sisters that you meet with regularly, talk with frequently, pray with consistently, that know you and you know them? And are you doing that for others? Are you are you building others up? Are you encouraging others in the faith? Your brothers and sisters need you. You know that. It's a hard road. And the longer you walk with Christ, it just gets harder. The more you grow in, your, in the faith and wisdom and love of God, the harder this road gets. So are you doing that? And is that being done for you? And if not, if the answer is no, it's really, I, I'm really still going at this alone, then, then confess that to God as sin. Turn and, and get involved in the local body. Get people in your life. Get into people's lives. It's necessary for us to make it, my beloved. Just because the Western world and the Western church, just because we've changed how we do Christianity does not mean that God has changed the means by which he grows and perseveres His people. The Bible has not changed. Just because we have, the harvest of God's people is coming Jesus will put in his sickle and bring the redeemed into the Father's barn in heaven. So are you ready, my beloved? Are you ready? You certainly don't want to miss the first harvest. You don't want to be fully ripe. You don't want to be doing Christianity in isolation. You don't want to be caught off guard when he comes. When he comes, my beloved, he's coming for his bride. He's coming for the church. So, if you're doing your thing outside of the church when he comes, don't be surprised when you get missed. You don't want to miss the first harvest because there's a second. And the second harvest is one you don't want to have any part of. Point number two a prayer still with me the harvest of eternal death. So, John sees two end times harvests one by the Son of Man who's coming to gather his people, to himself, and another conducted by an angel with a sharp sickle who gathers the unrepentant for what? For the wine press of God. Look at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. So just like the sickle that Jesus had in his hand, this one comes in order to reap a harvest as well. But it's not a harvest of salvation. It's a harvest of judgment It's a harvest that God has issued as judgment upon all those who refuse to follow Christ. This angel, like Jesus, has a sharp sickle, uh, and he's ready to harvest as well. Look at verse 18. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. Now that altar is probably the altar of incense and if you remember from Revelation chapter 8, the, the uh, angel that was attached to the altar of incense, he grabbed his censer and he scooped up fire and what did he do? He threw it down to the earth. It was a form of judgment by God and so this is very likely uh, an angel coming forth from um, that altar as well. In other words, this second harvest is clearly a harvest of judgment. God's judgment upon those who refuse to believe. And it's, it's positioned in stark contrast to the harvest of Jesus Christ who's, re, who's redeeming his people for eternity. The second angel with the power of fire, that's the power to judge the earth, he then calls to the first angel. Look at the latter part of verse 18. He called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. And so the imagery now shifts from wheat to grapes, from a wheat field to the vineyard. And the purpose of this harvest is very, very different. Look at 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest Of the earth, and listen to what he did. He threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So this this angel with his sickle, just as Christ did in the redemption of the of the saved, it spans time and space. Throughout all of human history, this angel is gathering the unrepentant in order to be thrown into the great winepress. Of God's wrath. Now we hear that and we think, you know, I, I don't really know that much about wine or wine presses. Um, the culture at this time obviously did. It's not complicated. My, my years ago, uh, my wife, uh, we had a, a reunion out in Escalon, and my wife's Italian, their family's Italian, and they were celebrating by actually, they had this massive bin where they threw grapes in. And everybody took turns, Jumped, took off their shoes, jumped in, and they smashed up these grapes. Um, and then, obviously, the juice would roll out, and they had containers where they would collect it, and, the, and then eventually make wine out of it. Uh, it was very similar, actually, to how they did a wine press in the first century. Um, the boys loved it. The boys were little, and they, they jumped in there. We rolled up their pants, and they stomped, and they stomped, and... And it was fascinating because this passage immediately came to mind. They were covered, their feet and their legs were stained, but so were their clothes. They had thrown grape juice all over. And we have this great picture. Um, It was a beautiful picture, but this is not. This is not. Uh, John is not describing a joyful occasion at a family reunion. He is describing the divine wrath of God. And he's identifying God as this great warrior. And he's drawing it from Isaiah chapter 63. This warrior who is coming back from the battlefield victorious on the day of vengeance. And the divine warrior's clothes are stained with the blood of his enemies. Listen to Isaiah 63. This is where John's getting the the description of the vision. Isaiah 63. A question is posed to God. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? God is asked. God answers. I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered, spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I trampled them down, the people in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Graphic. Intentionally so. If you remember last week, we were talking about the severity and duration of the wrath of God and how the smoke of those who are under his judgment, goes up forever and ever because the punishment never ends. This week, it is re-explained. The second harvest reveals the fury of God's wrath as he alone crushes underfoot all who what? Who will not fear him, all who will not worship him, all who will not bow down to Christ as king. Look at verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now the city itself here is not named, but most commentators believe that they're talking about Jerusalem, they're talking about the city of God. And so this great harvest that's going to take place, this harvest of judgment will take place outside the holy city, outside the city of God, where all those who what? All those who sided with the unholy trinity with the dragon and the first beast and the false prophet, all those who refuse to bow down to the true Trinity, to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they will be thrown into the winepress and they will, experience, they will experience the full fury of God's wrath. Now, if you think about God as he's revealed himself in his word and you think about someone experiencing the full wrath of God, it's without words we can't describe we've tried over the past several weeks we can't even get close to how horrific this image should be for us now in revelation chapter 19 verse 15 we're told that the rider on the white horse when he comes of course we know that to be Christ it says in revelation 19:15 we'll get there that he will this rider Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God almighty himself In other words, it's Jesus in the first harvest who reaps what he has sown, that is the redeemed, he brings them in, and it is Jesus who will tread the winepress of God's fury. In other words, my beloved, your relationship with Jesus, how you know Jesus right now will determine how you experience Jesus in the end. Will you experience him on that white cloud with with that gold crown coming down and harvesting you as beautiful wheat, bringing you into the eternal barn of the Father? Or will you experience Him as He tramples you in the winepress of God's fury? It's one or the other. And how you know Him now will determine how you are harvested in the end. Wheat for eternal life because you put your faith in Christ or grapes of wrath who refuse Christ as Lord and Savior, crushed under the full fury and wrath of God. And from this vision, John makes it clear that those who suffer the wrath of God will not be few. It's not just going to be, as the culture likes say, it's going to be the worst people, you know, the Adolf Hitlers and the Vladimir Putins and the Xi Jinping's. It's not just going to be them. It's going to be the multitudes that come under the wrath of God. Look at the latter part of verse 20 again. Blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now for millennia, my beloved, blood and wine have been associated in literature. So we shouldn't be surprised to have this imagery of a winepress pouring forth blood. Here, it's the blood of God's enemies that's flowing forth. And it's flowing. The, The height of a horse's bridle anywhere between 4 and 6 feet 1600 stadia is 200 miles long so 4 to 6 feet high and 200 miles a river of blood it's it's hyperbolic language it's symbolic language but it's intended to heighten the magnitude of the wrath of god that he will pour upon all those who bow down to the dragon and the beast, and listen to the false prophet, all those who remain citizens of what? Of Babylon, who will not come out. So we see here from this passage two distinct harvests and two distinct endings for all mankind. Everyone's going to be harvested, and the only difference between the the first harvest and the second harvest is the relationship with Jesus Christ, The harvest is contingent upon Jesus. How do you know Him? How do you really know Him? Not your profession, not your baptism, not your church. How do you know the harvester? Do you really know Him, my beloved? That is the question that this passage presents to us. Just like the first harvest we contemplated, I think the second harvest is even easier to push aside in day-to-day life. I mean, it's, The more extreme something is, the more apt we are to say, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it on a Monday morning when I got a headache and I need a cup of coffee. We get so wrapped up in life, the good, the bad, the mundane, that our vision of the end becomes obscured. Maybe so much to the point where we don't even know that it's there anymore. But the end hasn't changed. You forgetting about the end doesn't change the end of human history. It doesn't thwart the will of God. It doesn't mean that the harvest will not take place. When we lose sight of the harvest of judgment that awaits all those in our mission field who reject Christ, when we lose sight, we lose compassion, do we not? We stop thinking about those that we love and that we know who do not know Christ. We stop considering the fact that this is talking about them. Their their blood's gonna be part of that 1600 stadia. It's gonna be part of that horse's bridle. And so we relate to them and we treat them and we talk to them as though there's no danger before them when in fact we know there is. We lose compassion and we don't tell them that they don't have to stay grapes of wrath. They don't have to remain grapes of wrath. We, we don't tell them that they can become wheat for the harvest of Christ into the kingdom forever and ever. We don't tell them that they can change, not in themselves, but because of of what Christ did to change man. We don't tell them that the Son of Man went to the cross to make grapes of wrath harvestable wheat. We don't tell them that. You see, before Jesus was exalted to the highest heaven and before he was given that sickle by God the Father to reap what he had sown, he first had to redeem sinful man. He had to have something to reap And the only way to redeem fallen man was to pay for man's eternal sins. He had to pay for our sins as grapes of wrath so that grapes of wrath by grace through faith could become wheat ready and ripe for the harvest. He had to satisfy the justice of God. He had to receive, as you know, the full punishment that you deserved, which was an eternity in hell. In other words, what, What did Christ have to do? He had to climb into the winepress of God. He had to get in himself. And then he had to have the father trample his body and spill his blood. The father's garment stained with the blood of the son to bring redemption to sinful man. And all this we're told takes place outside the city gates where. The unclean are taken. And he did all this so that grapes of wrath ripe for harvest, like us, deserving of God's fury, could be forgiven in full and made into wheat, made ready for a life of eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. According to the gospel narrative, you probably know this, Jesus was crucified where? Outside the city of God outside of Jerusalem in a place a little place called Golgotha and for centuries the, the Jews understood that you took unclean things outside of the city outside of the camp when they were in the wilderness Leviticus four twelve, when the sin offering was made the remains were taken outside the camp in their desert wanderings when someone became unclean they were put outside the camp until they become clean again and, of course, we know on, from Leviticus on the Day of Atonement, that, that day when the, when the high priest would go into the holiest of holies and, and seek forgiveness for the nation, for God's people, the sacrifices there, too, were also taken out. Listen to this. This is from Leviticus 16, 27, on the Day of Atonement. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place for the people of God. It shall be carried where? Outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire outside the camp. My beloved, the gospel narrative tells us that it was Jesus Christ who went outside the city gates, who went outside the camp of God's people, away from the temple of God, and ascended the cross, and that was climbing into the winepress. He became the perfect atoning sacrifice that we so desperately need in order to be redeemed by him. He was crucified outside the city not because he was unclean. He was crucified outside the city because he bore the sins in his flesh of our uncleanliness. He became our unclean substitute. Cast out of the city, out of community, out of the presence of God, so what? So that grapes of wrath like us could be transformed into wheat and brought back into the city, back into the community of God, back into the presence of God. This is the great work that Jesus accomplished by climbing into the winepress, by ascending the cross, and taking the fury of God's wrath upon himself to bring you back in. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to what? To sanctify the people through his own blood. Oh my goodness, my beloved. For 2,000 years, the blood of Jesus has been flowing from the cross and not six feet high and 200 miles long 25,000 miles circumventing the entire globe and all those who would hear the gospel, repent and believe, all those who put their faith in Christ, their trust in God through Jesus' blood are what? They are saved. They become part of the first harvest and his blood flows even this hour, even in this place, redeeming many. No longer my beloved subject, To the winepress and the fury of God do you have to be? You can, in Christ, be transformed from grapes of wrath into wheat ready for eternal life. That is the good news of the gospel of grace. Jesus saving all who believe by subjecting his body and his blood to the winepress of God. So what should your response be to this? What should our response be to this extraordinary act of love? This truly incomprehensible sacrifice made to save sinners like us. How should those of us now in Christ live knowing that our end is life and not death? The author of Hebrews also said this, Hebrews 13, in light of this great work of Christ going outside the city and redeeming us through His blood, let us go to Him Let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for we have no lasting city here but we seek the city that is to come. Now we learned last week about Babylon and that Babylon will not last. It is a city born to destruction and all those who are part of that, remember verse eight, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So we know that city's not gonna last. There's no reason for you to be in and of this place. In other words, as a as a follower of Christ, you must forsake all the idols and all the false teachings perpetuated by the false prophets and you must seek the city that is to come, the eternal city of God. And that means, my beloved, you living for God in his glory first and foremost. Very, very simply. It means that nothing in this world, nothing captures your heart more than God Himself. Nothing. Not your career, not your education, not your family whom you love and friends whom you love, not your portfolio. God's glory, His kingdom, must be first in your life. It must weigh in on every decision that you make. It must speak into every relationship that you have, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your resources, the plan and purpose of your life. God and his city must come first. You say, well, how do I do that? that? That sounds hard. I would say it's impossible, apart from Christ and the Spirit. We do it by, by going outside the camp, by going outside of Babylon, and going to Jesus at the cross. Do we not? We do it by going to Christ and bearing the reproach that he endured, the mocking, the shame, the persecution, and possibly even giving up your own life by going to Christ, by living for Christ, which will make you an oddity at best, probably an enemy to many. And we do it because, and you know this, my beloved, being with Jesus is what you want most. We go outside of Babylon, we go outside the camp, we go to the cross, we endure the shame to get to Christ. No matter how hard it is to get to him, to stay with him and to be with him. There's no golden ticket in Babylon. We gotta stop looking for that golden ticket, that lifetime supply of chocolate here. It's not here in this city. We must go outside the city. We must go to Christ. We must go to the cross because when you get there, you're going to gaze upon your Savior and you're going to see the sin that he bore in your place and you're going to see the fact that he did endure. In fact, he endured the wine press of God's fury and he did it, my beloved, not just to glorify God. He did it to, now listen, with all your mics, I'm going to stop talking in a minute and I want you to get this. He did it to have you to get you, to harvest you into his eternal kingdom forever and ever because he wants you there. He doesn't need you there, but he wants you there. And it's such a good thing to be wanted, my beloved. And what an amazing thing that you're actually wanted by God in Christ. Not an enemy, not a grape of wrath, but a beautiful head of wheat, fully ripe. He wants you and that's why he stayed That's why he endured your punishment in full to clear your guilt and enable you to look forward to that city that is to come, to fix your eyes there, that eternal city where you will be able to enjoy God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and all of God's people and all of God's angels forever and ever in eternal worship. You go to Jesus because you want to be with the one who loves you most. And he does. He loves you most. You go to Jesus outside the camp where it's hard to live and you remain there with him because you want to be with your best friend, don't you? You want to be with the one who provides and protects you at all times. You go to him. You long for him. You, you anticipate that day when you will be with him, fully with him, body and soul, laughing with him, worshiping with him, singing with him, serving him for eternity. My beloved, when we go outside the city of Babylon to Jesus, the temptations and the trappings that that hold you, they, they lose their lure, do they not? The more time you spend with Christ, the more time you spend at the cross with Christ outside the city of Babylon, growing in your faith, growing in your hope, and growing in your love, what happens? All the temptations, all the trials, they seem to diminish in their power. You don't long for them. You don't pursue them. You don't even want many of them anymore. I love how the hymnist put it, the things of this world, what? They grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace in the presence of Christ. My beloved, we read our Bibles and we pray to get to Jesus. We gather, we sing, we serve, we preach to get to Jesus. We gather as family and we love one another and we, are, we encourage one another and we build one another up so, what, so we can all together as a family get to Jesus to not miss Christ. He is the end of the story. And oh, how we want our story to end with him as a harvester of salvation and not a harvester of wrath. Friends, this final harvest is real. The only way to become wheat, harvested for eternal life instead of remaining grapes of wrath, harvested for eternal destruction, is to go to Christ, to be united to Christ the harvester himself. Paul said it well, Romans 6, 5, if we've been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. Amen. Are you united to Christ? Have you left Babylon? Have you gone out to the cross? And have you made Christ your Lord and Savior? If not, my beloved, too so today. Your harvest is fast approaching, and you do not want to be surprised in the end of your story. No surprises, no Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess the lack of attention we give to the great harvest to come Our daily lives and our flesh do not want to contemplate such an extreme eternal ending. But we know it's true. Your Bible teaches it again and again to us. And so I pray, Father, that you would not allow us tonight, tomorrow, this week to not think about daily, to not meditate on the truth of these two harvests, one to life and one to death. I ask, Lord, that we would contemplate how sober we are, how awake we are whether or not we are growing in our faith and our hope and our love. I pray we would ask ourselves, how how are we encouraging and building up one another? How am I being encouraged and built up? We ask ourselves that this week, Father. And I pray above all else that we would run to Christ every moment of every day, that we would go outside of this this city of destruction and we would dwell with Him. Um, We know, Lord, that will bring reproach, but it's well worth it if we bring you honor and glory in so doing. Bless us with clarity and conviction and hope today, I pray, in light of this passage. In Christ's name, amen.